0: welcome to the big list podcast the podcast where we list the weird the wonderful the interesting and always the original we are your host bison woody
1: to infinity
0: and beyond no we are your hosts ames and katie and today we have a list that i am so excited about (laughs) i have wanted to do this list since the start of this podcast we are talking about weird origin stories of everyday items and like let's be honest some things just don't feel like inventions because well they've been around so long and are so useful it's almost like we wouldn't survive without them but these items i guarantee you have no idea where they come from
1: let's go Number 10. I'm going to start with makeup. Makeup. Yeah. Like um, makeup? (laughs) More specifically, I'll get into red lipstick because this was a particularly interesting topic. Love red lipstick. I know. It's amazing. It's gone through a bit of a uh, progression, though, from (laughs) something that was almost outlawed to something that is part of the everyday occurrence. So um, back in the olden days. How olden? Uh, 3,500 BCE. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're going so, way So we're going to go uh,
0: pre-civilization. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pre-everything. Uh, pre-the dinosaurs. think. <laughs> it's that far back. Stegosaurus wearing lead, red lipstick. That's the only thing <laughs> Pre- Wasn- I've got in my
0: mind right now. <laughs> just, just let it ruminate for a second. It's a really awesome thought.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Continue, as you were. So back... A long time ago, the um, red lipstick kind of started where red rocks were actually crushed into powder and used to tint lips. Cleopatra actually wore lip paint that was crushed insects mixed into a paste and then applied to her lips. Eat your heart out, vegans. Absolutely. <laughs> By 1770, England had actually banned cosmetics of any kind. And the rationale was... Um, because basically women claimed were to be found guilty of seducing men into marriage using makeup. So it was basically like false advertising they claimed.
0: I mean, have you seen some of the
1: catfish videos that are on the internet now? Yeah. That's a pretty fair claim. (laughs) Pretty fair. Um, But it actually was a little bit unusual because women would be tried for witchcraft if they wore makeup. And the rationale was, Because they were guilty of seducing men into buying something that uh, essentially (laughs) was a fake product. Going back, um, red lipstick was originally associated with lower class women and prostitutes. I take personal offense to that. I know, right? There was even a point in time where women who were prostitutes had to wear red lipstick to distinguish themselves from other people in society. People were basically categorized a particular way based on the lipstick that they were wearing, which was rough. And having to wear it to identify yourself as a prostitute, very rough. But ideally what happened was this whole bullet lipstick was actually invented in Nashville, Tennessee by a guy called James Bruce Mason Jr. in 1923.
0: Not to be confused with Bruce Price, architect. (laughs) Architect.
1: (laughs) It's going to be a running theme for this podcast. I know, right? So following this... um, red lipstick actually became a mark of independence. And women who were protesting or rallying would wear red lipstick to gain more attention with their rallies for equal rights. I love that. Yeah, so it became a bit of a thing. So to go with this um, red lipstick, originally there were cigarettes that were designed to hide your lipstick. So they almost had like a black end on it where you actually suck the cigarette And the rationale behind it was the black butt would avoid lipstick being seen on the cigarette. So it was this whole thing. And these cigarettes were marketed to women who were wearing these bright colored lipsticks. Wow. So it was like underground to wear them
0: in the first place. And then it was a sign of independence. But you couldn't really be that independent. You still had to kind
1: of hide it. You still had to kind of hide it um ideally what happened was so this was a product that was advertised very heavily and essentially it failed um women weren't impressed with this black part of the cigarette and so cigarettes were then remarketed and the way that you see them today is the way that they've been since around this time and the the butt end on it where you suck through is actually a tan color because apparently that appeals to males more Okay, so the tan colour on the bottom of a cigarette is because... For men. Men, men like the colour. Correct. Okay. And that was successful for the cigarette companies. Um, and these black but women-based cigarettes basically were abolished. So eventually women um, continued to wear red lipstick and it became a sign of feminism and liberation. So it kind of moved from this whole um, crushed rocks on lips to um you know women seducing men being guilty of witchcraft through to independence um all the way through to women actually wearing red lipstick as a sign of feminism and liberation i i
0: just in the back of my mind now i'm just hearing that that theme song you know sisters are doing it for themselves <laughs> pretty much <laughs> and, and you th- just described like being a woman
1: <laughs> through 300 years in 30 seconds <laughs> pretty much <laughs> all because of lipstick eventually famous women started wearing red lipstick so marilyn Monroe, rita hayworth elizabeth taylor and the idea for them was it made them stand out and they sort of started rebelling against this whole idea that lipstick categorized you as somebody who was rallying or someone who was a prostitute. So it became more mainstream. And ideally, it it took nearly 5,000 years for red lipstick to become socially acceptable. I want to wear it every day knowing that fact. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy because it is something that is worn as a statement now. But ideally, that's the backstory of red lipstick. It's been through a huge journey. Um, in it becoming something that was socially acceptable. It's kind of funny. I was wearing red lipstick yesterday and I said to my coworker, you
0: know, I feel like wearing red lipstick is an emotional, it's an emotional commitment that you have to make throughout the day because you have to be prepared to reapply. And make sure it's not smudging. And it's like this whole like actual, you have to think about it in advance. Mm. So my lipstick wearing experience is no different today than Mm. the lipstick wearing (laughs) experience
1: of women (laughs) 300 years ago. They still had to think about it back then. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, a bit of an interesting story. But that's where red lipstick came from. So a bit of a journey. Number nine. T-shirts!
0: Like, we wear them, right? You wear them every day?
1: I mean, I try to.
0: Yeah. T-shirts date back to around 1904. And this is all thanks to single dudes. Okay. (laughs) In the 19th century, T-shirts were used as underwear. So, like, undergarments. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in and around the mid-20th century, they became became more casual clothing. Um, So, back then, T-shirts were worn exclusively by single guys. Now, this is because clothing back at the turn of the century, all the guys' shirts had buttons on them, right? Right. And if you're wearing shirts with buttons on them all the time, what happens? Well, your buttons fall off. Yeah. So if you're a single guy, you don't have a wife or a sister or you're a mother to sew them back on. To sew them back on. So because sewing was thought of a uh, an activity for the fairer sex, a lot of single guys going off to war were having problems with actually safety pinning their shirts (laughs) shut. They were first marketed as slip-on garments without buttons and the earliest t-shirts date back somewhere between 1898 um, and 1904, which is when the Spanish-American War was happening. Mm -hmm. And the Cop... I don't know if it's Copper or Cooper, so I'm probably going to say it wrong and I'm probably going to get someone correcting me, but I'm going to go ahead and say Cooper. Mm -hmm. The Cooper Underwear Company ran a magazine ad announcing a new product... And they actually marketed it towards
1: bachelors okay so so they don't want to learn how to sew so (laughs) you know what? fuck it we'll make a new product
0: but they actually did in this in this ad campaign they kind of did this before and after right so in the before photo it shows a man his eyes are like really sad he's looking at the camera as if he's embarrassed he's lost all the buttons on his undershirt and he's safety pinned them together okay um and like some of the fabric is just like flapping in the wind and he Uh looks just really embarrassed (laughs) and then right next to it in the after photo they show this virile gentleman (laughs) in this amazing t-shirt with a handlebar mustache smoking a cigar and he's wearing the quote-unquote bachelor's undershirt (laughs) so it's um stretchy enough to be pulled over one's head and the ad actually says no safety pins, no buttons, no needle, no thread.
1: Um, I feel like they missed an opportunity. The end of that should have been no worries.
0: Oh, see, <laughs> you don't need to be a lawyer. Get a job advertising. <laughs> it took the US Navy less than a year to see the ad and start issuing T-shirts to all of its sailors. Fun little fact. This is actually where we get the term crew neck. Okay. For your T-shirts. Makes sense. So T-shirts were the default garment um, for farm and ranch chores around the Great Depression era, while conditions kind of called for durable lightweight fabrics that needed very little laundering. Mm -hmm. And then after World War II, they were worn by the Navy um, as underwear, but it later became common when the guys were coming back from war for them to wear um, their trousers and T-shirts as more of a casual look. And then it was after Marlon Brando wore a t-shirt in a streetcar named Desire, it became even more popular, became even more mainstream. Um, So the rest, as they say, is history. But just some fun facts for you about t-shirts. As we know, t-shirts are generally inexpensive, um, unless they're Yeezy brand, of course. (laughs) I think I saw one the other day that went for like $1,000. Oh, my God. And it had holes in it. <laughs> I was like, seven bucks, I will go to Kmart, buy a t-shirt. And rip holes in it. I will give it to my nephew to trail around around outside of his tricycle. And then off you go. <laughs> and then I'll get a Sharpie marker and just write Yeezy on the tag.
1: <laughs> Don't <laughs> <Just> tell anyone.
0: <laughs> $997. Don't tell Kanye. <laughs> Anyways, they're inexpensive, um, but t-shirt production and sales outrank any other kind of mass-produced clothing besides socks and underwear at a whopping six to one. So that's huge, that's right? Um, last year alone, the USA sold 2.73 billion t-shirts. Shit. <laughs> yep. Um, and other countries are buying lots of shirts, too. So people in developed countries, on average, tend to buy about nine shirts a year, which equates to a massive 9,875,000,000 meters of fabric globally per year.
1: Insane. Number eight. Let's talk a little bit about treadmills. It's a a short story. In 1818, treadmills were actually created as a form of punishment for prisoners. (laughs) Uh, Believe it. (laughs) So we have a civil engineer who invented the concept. Really, it was a device to punish convicts. And what they used to do were uh, prisoners were forced to climb onto these spokes of a large paddle wheel. Um, It was actually referred to as the never-ending staircase. (laughs) That sounds
0: miserable.
1: Basically, prisoners would work eight-hour shifts on these treadmills. And the gears on the treadmill actually um, pumped water or crushed grain. So they were on these treadmills for eight hours, and they were producing products of some description.
0: That's nuts.
1: So in 1824, the treadmill device was said that it would tame the most defiant of prisoners. So it really was a torture contraption. What happened was a lot of American prisons actually stopped using the treadmill because it was too much of a torture device. Um, However, England actually continued to use it into the 19th century. Um, I
0: totally believe that.
1: In later after the 19th century it was actually abandoned because it was deemed far too cruel for any prisoner
0: did you hear that personal trainer
1: far too cruel the
0: treadmill is far too cruel for any prisoner in the 18th century i don't ever
1: want to hear you say get on it 100 <laughs> percent. so ideally treadmills were done and dusted by then it was all over in the 1960s uh dr kenneth Cooper actually saw that there were health benefits from the machine and at that point it was actually turned into an exercise machine and now we have them in gyms. The treadmill, past and present torture device. Number seven.
0: So John Pemberton who was actually a confederate colonel who was w- wounded in the American civil war. He had an addiction to morphine. Um, he also had a medical degree. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you can have a morphine addiction, having a medical degree is kind of handy. I mean, you're
1: going to have a lot of access um, ease of access. If you like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's in the right field. What would say, um, but he went on a quest to find a
0: substitute because morphine was essentially ruining his life. Uh, We shouldn't laugh at that. We're horrible people for laughing at that. Um, But Pemberton's Eagle Drug and Chemical House in Columbus, Georgia, registered Pemberton's French wine Coca Nerve Tonic in 1885. Now, Pemberton's tonic um, may have been inspired by something called a Vin Miriani, which is actually a French. Uh, Caution, coca wine. But what he did is he actually added in African coconut, which contains caffeine. So the drink was originally called Cola coca. Okay. <laughs> and that was, uh, presented at a contest in Philadelphia in 1885. Um, a year before Coca-Cola, the brand was ever born. Um, Coca-Cola was actually something that was produced by a Spanish company. It was a Spanish drink, Mm. but the Philadelphia-based company bought the rights to that in uh, 1953, so they couldn't use it anymore. Um, Atlanta and Fullerton County passed the Prohibition legislation in 1886. So Pemberton developed Coca-Cola, which was a non-alcoholic version of Pemberton's French wine, um, and it was marketed to the masses as a temperance drink. So getting people to drink Coke instead of drinking wine or drinking, you know, ale. The first sales were at Jacobs Pharmacy in Atlanta, Georgia on May 8th, 1886, where it was initially sold for five cents a glass. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, The drugstore soda fountains were popular in the United States at the time due to the belief that carbonated water was good for your health. And Pemberton's new drink was marketed and sold as a patent medicine So Coke was actually sold to the masses as like a tonic water that was good for your health. All right, I'm here for it. Pemberton first ran the ad for the beverage on May 29th in the same year in the Atlanta Journal. By 1888, three versions of Coca-Cola sold by three separate businesses were on the market. A co-partnership had been formed on January 14th, 1888 between Pemberton and the four other Atlantis businessmen. This business deal wasn't actually codified by any signed document it was just a verbal agreement between the four different entities that were actually making coke john pemberton declared that the name coca-cola belonged to his son charlie but the other two manufacturers would continue to use the formula so Charlie Pemberton's record of control over Coca-Cola name was the underlying factor that allowed him to participate as a major shareholder in March of 1888. Now, there's a whole bunch of legal stuff that mm. happened um, between 1888 and today, but long story short, they ultimately owned the rights to the name, so therefore they own the rights to the formula, and they basically bought out the other companies, and the rest is all happy, right? Mm-hmm. What if I told you that there has actually been lawsuits... Involving Coca-Cola and Colombia death squads. In July of two thousand one, the Coca-Cola company was sued over its alleged use of political far right wing death squads. Um, so death squads in Colombia mm-hmm. to kidnap, torture, and kill Colombia Colombian bottle workers that were linked with trade union activity. So there was these allegations of trade unions breaking out in the bottling factories in Colombia, and Coke was like, not having none of it. Coca-Cola was sued in a U.S. federal court um, in Miami by the Colombian Food and Drink Union, uh, Sinatrao. The suit alleged that Coca-Cola was indirectly responsible for having contracted with or otherwise directly paramilitary security forces that utilized extreme violence, murdered, tortured, and unlawfully detained or otherwise silenced trade union leaders. So this actually sparked campaigns to boycott Coca-Cola. I don't know if you remember this, but there was actually a big boycott Coca-Cola in the early 2000s um, in the UK, Germany, Italy, Australia. Do you remember that? Vaguely. Yeah, so that's what this was about. Okay. So Javier Correa, um, the president of Cinetrail, said the campaign aimed to put pressure on Coca-Cola to mitigate the pain and suffering of union members that had suffered. But of course, you know, speaking from the headquarters in Atlanta,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, the company spokesperson Rafael Curos said, "Coca-Cola denies any connection to any human rights violation of this type." He further added, "We do not own or operate the plants," and that was a uh, that was a direct quote from <laughs> a spokesperson of Coca-Cola. So we don't participate in Colombian death squads of this type. <laughs>
1: Do you think that's maybe where um, a lot of companies started employing lawyers and only allowing them to speak in PR matters?
0: (laughs) I don't know about you, Ames, but I'm thirsty. Number
1: six. Have you ever thought about where potato chips have come from? (laughs) Only when I find them in my couch. (laughs) If I could eat potato chips for every single meal, I would. Where did they come from? So, a guy by the name of George Crum. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, his name's Crum, C R U M.
0: <laughs> like, have you ever had those names where you're like, when you hear the person's uh. profession, you're
1: like that makes total sense. Makes total sense. So this guy was born in 1824. So one night he had a customer in the restaurant who kept sending back the hot chips and complaining that they were too thick. So apparently this happened three, four, five times. And this guy just kept sending the food back. And he's like, you know what? This is not to my liking. Do it again. So basically... Hasn't cut my chips thinner. Pretty much. And George was like, you know what? I'm done with this. So he got a knife... And he cut them so thin that they were almost paper thin. So they were like really thin, right? You're telling me that potato chips were invented
0: because a guy was petty.
1: Yep. (laughs) So he cut them really, really thin and he goes righto. And he deep fried them, put them on a plate and sent it out. And the guy apparently was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I love these. They're the perfect thickness. So the guy was a massive dick because he was, cause George was serving hot chips, right? Mm-hmm. Hot chips and potato chips are two totally different things. Yes. Mm-hmm. They're both potatoes, but they're two worlds apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so the customer absolutely loved them. And then people started coming to the restaurant asking for these really thin potato chips and they basically became special chips and they were originally called Saratoga chips. Um, There's also a funny kind of link here because George claims he created the potato chip, but his sister claims that she created it at home when she was cutting potatoes and a small piece of a potato flew into an air fryer. Then she took it out and tried it, liked it, and gave it to George who really liked it as well. Lots of people have tried claiming the potato chip and the invention. Um, so the guy who actually owned the restaurant that George worked in also tried to claim that he created the potato chips, not George. So there's been this big back and forth across multiple people arguing about, you know, who created it anyway. Moving on, customers were loving these Saratoga chips and the guy who ran the restaurant had an idea and he said, well, why don't we fry up our potato chips and put them in boxes and sell them? And we can ship them to people. And they were like, brilliant idea. So these potato chips, whilst being sold in boxes, um, they, were, they were quite limited. So you obviously had to have the money to buy them. You had to wait for it. It was this whole thing. But George's chips that he was creating in the restaurant stayed a local delicacy until about 1920. The reason they became mainstream is because there was a salesman named Herman Lay. Of lace Chips. Correct. Get out. Yeah. So he uh, basically bought the invention and then he said, you know, we can mass produce this stuff and get it to people. Genius. And that's where the the potato chips have come from. Number
0: five. What if I told you that your fork... In your kitchen drawer, actually started with a cultish, swinging, religious rebellion. In an article in the New York Times, they refer to Knowles as a perfectionist, but he saw himself as a visionary. Now, according to Knowles and his followers, Jesus had already returned to Earth by 70 CE, which meant that the utopian kingdom of God had already begun. For some groups to take advantage, they simply... So, basically, Knowles told his followers, if you want to take advantage of God coming back to Earth, we just have to start living like children of God. Okay. So, the group decided to go for it. They moved into a red brick building Mm -hmm. in 1948, and Knowles argued that since early Christian communities were communal, Oneida community should start sharing everything too. Mm Mm-hmm. So that meant funds, living spaces, business ventures, cutlery, and spouses. And what they were finding is when they were sharing cutlery, mm. because they were they used to be made out of different materials, that they would actually tarnish and rust a lot faster. Now, in this little community, they had people from all different walks of life, right? Like they had inventors, they had doctors, yeah. um, they had nurses, they had teachers. But what they were finding specifically with the cutlery, after being shared with multiple different people, the cutlery would actually deteriorate. Mm -hmm. Um, It would rust or it would just turn a really funny color. Or if they had made it out of wood, um, that wood would actually splinter because that was quite common as well. You couldn't afford to make, um, you know, get gold or whatever it was for your, your tableware. So they actually came up with this concept of doing Silverware that wasn't actually made out of silver but was coated in silver.
1: Oh, God, it tastes so tinny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, does it taste tinny when you put a spoon in your mouth
1: now because the formula hasn't changed much? No, but it's like legit silver. (laughs) So, and and you wash it a million times and you're not tasting. It's like licking the bottom of a battery. Have you ever done that? Just like licked a nearly dead battery?
0: Why would anyone do that?
1: Because it zaps you. Again, why would anyone do that? I can't believe you haven't done that. I can't believe you have. I mean, it's a good way to test if your battery is dead or not. Anyone listening to this under the age of 15 with a brain or without a brain, do not do that. I mean, we used to do it all the time. Is the battery dead? Like, oh, yeah, she's dead in the bin. So much is making sense for me now, your personality. (laughs) So much
0: is falling into play. I need to go lick a battery. BRB. I mean, they've created flatware now, um, and they actually thought that in and amongst this whole creation, these mm. business ventures and everything like that, um, they actually st- decided it was a good idea to start doing selective breeding. Oh, so God.
1: Like that, what you do with cats and dogs. Yeah, exactly. You so breed unfortunately, them.
0: Unfortunately, that led to abusive practices like breaking apart marriages, coercing young and old community members into really shocking situations. Um, Though the utopian experiment eventually fell apart, uh, members still managed to hold on to their business dealings. Mm. So no more sex cult that shares everything. The exploitation practices that were involved with that company are now no longer around. Um, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Uh, But yeah, that company is still very much in existence and they are responsible for the majority of flatware that's in your drawer right now.
1: Number 4. We've talked about a few serious things. I want to talk to you about some of the worst items ever created. I am so here for this. All right. I got a few, so I'll I'll kick off. Let me start with the anti-eating mask. <laughs> All right. It's sorry, 1982.
0: Sorry. I'm just going to keep laughing here for a second.
1: Come as you were. Um, and we had a guy by the name of Luck Bambi in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what this thing is, it's a device that you strap to your head. And it's basically this little cage that goes over your mouth. And it's got a head strap. So it's like a full face thing. So think Like of a like,
0: Hannibal Lecter
1: mask? Exactly like that. And that's what people refer to it as looking like. Wow. So it's a full thing. So... The mask was created for people that eat too much, right? However, where it actually took off was where men would go to work and leave their wives at home and they had to prepare dinner and pastries and stuff like that for their men when they get home. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that the man didn't want their wife getting fat, so they would strap them into this headgear before they left to go to work. You are kidding. No, dead dead set. And it was a thing. And so the, these guys would go to work. And the straps um, were in a particular way where you couldn't actually take it off yourself. So it actually had to be cut off with the straps under the chin. And that could only be done by someone else.
0: Okay, further proof that women have had it so hard throughout <laughs> history. Like, like everything we've spoken yeah. about today, sex cults, being sold into slavery and marked with red lipstick
1: starvation masks strapped to our heads could you imagine (laughs) husband goes to work and he's like you know what you're looking a bit porky let's put the anti-eating mask on straps it on he goes to work you are starving and then you have to wait till he gets home and you've got to prepare his meal so the whole premise here was women belong in the kitchen and they've got to prepare meals for their men but and they, this was to stop like if you're cutting something and you're nibbling on a bit of cheese or you're yeah. nibbling on a you know whatever fruit veggies whatever so that was the uh That's- anti-eating mask let me tell you about another couple of stupid inventions there was a thing invented called the no phone the no phone the no phone so it was the opposite of a phone okay but can okay. you not just put All right, right, I'll hold hold my judgment. (laughs) So let me me describe it to you, though, right? Please, I'm here for it. No screen. Okay. No workable buttons. Sure. No battery. Uh Uh-huh. But it looks like a phone, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't function. So it's basically a brick in your pocket. So it's just a piece of plastic, right? And this actually made it to Shark Tank. And these two guys got up there and they pitched this idea of the no phone and they said you know we can sell these for $10 each and basically people that want to look like they have a phone but need to not be on their phone can buy the no phone and obviously the people on Shark Tank were like this is a fucking stupid idea turns out it was a completely fraudulent business but they actually got on <laughs> TV and, and actually pitched this at Shark Tank basically you buy just a piece of plastic <laughs> And that was a thing. $10 each, um, supposed to stop you from using your phone.
0: Tell me you're a fraudster without (laughs) telling telling me me. you're a
1: fraudster. All right, I have another one for you. This one got me because I saw pictures of this one. This is called the face butt towel. All right, let me paint a picture. (laughs) I've got one, you don't need to. It's a towel. It's a butt? No, it's got a line down the middle. (laughs) Half of it's white, half of it's brown. <laughs> and it says on the white bit face and on the brown bit butt. Alright, so this was invented. <laughs> this one got me. This was invented when DVDs were a thing, right? So mm-hmm. DVDs were sold cheap. It like came up big W, um, lots of different Walmart places. Walmart if yeah. you North well,
0: America. You'd
1: yeah. you'd go and and there'd be new releases and you'd buy DVDs. Um, You go home, get your popcorn, watch a movie. Someone created a DVD rewinder and sold it. People bought it. People bought a DVD rewinder. What are you rewinding? It's a disc. Oh, honey, sugar, baby,
0: sweetie. (laughs) Bad, right? No, just no.
1: No. No. Terrible. So my last honourable mention, and I love this idea, it's called the baby cage. Think of when you're, um, what are they called, crate training a dog, right? And the little crates with the bars and all the rest of it. So anyway, it was one of those for for babies. And the idea was that, (laughs) because women stay at home and they clean and that's all they do. So the idea was you would put your baby in the cage. Mm -hmm. You would hang the cage out your window and then you'd be able to clean your floor and do all of your cleaning duties with your baby hanging in a cage from the side of your house or apartment. And people bought it and did it. And so (laughs) these cages had- So this, this product is not just like hypothetical. This is actually made. Yeah, all of these are, they're all legit and they were sold and they sold quite well. Oh, my God. So they had babies hanging out of windows. Yeah, baby cage. I have no words. (laughs) Yeah, they were actually, I looked at the advertising brochures because it was back in the um, 80s where a lot of women did stay at home and they did all of the housework duties and there were pictures of this in black and white and there were babies in cages and there were people living in apartments like with your railing and the cage actually clipped to the railing and it was advertised, um, you know, and there was a woman vacuuming and the baby hanging out the window. Baby cage. (laughs) number three
0: fun story for you Mm -hmm. we got radar like sonar technology because someone actually wanted to invent a death ray
1: i actually think i've read something on this yeah so
0: like in 1930s britain it was a bit of a tense time Mm. right like pre-world war ii um nazi germany was ascending and the rest of the european continent was feeling kind of vulnerable to take over Um, And enemies were literally just a channel away, right? So the people of Great Britain were understandably nervous. Um, Even worse, intelligence suggested that Germany was gaining alarming advances in technology. Mm. So we all know that during Nazi Germany, they had crazy scientists and very, very smart people working Mm. for them. Um, They were basically poaching talent from all over the world and taking them all to Germany. With all this happening... What were members of the British military supposed to do? Their idea? Create a death ray. Makes sense. <laughs>
1: Where do I buy one? <laughs> I just have...
0: <laughs> I'm picturing Dr. Evil. Yeah. A death ray. <laughs> one million dollars.
1: Here's the plan. We get the warhead and we hold the world ransom for... One million dollars.
0: Two scientists at the radio research station, Robert Watson Watt and Arnold Skip Wilkins, uh, quickly determined that radio waves just wouldn't be powerful enough to knock pilots at 3,000 feet above ground out of the air. Still, Watt and Watkins recognized that the idea of radio waves was pretty intriguing. They couldn't do anything too dramatic, um, thanks to the power deficit, but both understood that radio waves could reflect off of surfaces. Mm-hmm. It was possible to read those reflections and detect incoming aircraft before anyone could see them. So this was literally made by accident. They shot a bunch of radio waves up into the air, hoping to not knock people out of the sky. <laughs> they're like, it's not working, but we can see them. <laughs> I'm having so much fun with this in my imagination. <laughs> know, I'm right. picturing a whole bunch of British a soldier standing around in a laboratory against somebody going, release the death ray. So by 1940, they developed the idea. They had a crazy name for it, which I'm not going to try and say. Um, But since factories have been, by that time, pounded by German bombs, they needed the Americans. That led to the formation of MIT's Radiation Laboratory, which is actually still in collaboration with the European
1: Union today. I'm laughing at the They needed the Americans. Like, it's just a thing. (laughs) Whenever shit goes wrong, America! Call the Americans! Get over here! (laughs) Number
0: two. Now I'm going to take you on to inventions that people never got credit for. Okay. All right. All right. So some of these you might know, some of them you might not know, but we'll, we'll run through them anyways. Um, who invented the telephone? Uh, Bell. No, Alexander Graham Bell did not actually invent the telephone. Oh, yep. So shame. On, June, on June 2nd, 1875, Alexander Graham, Bell and his assistant, Thomas Watson were working on their harmonic telegraph. So that was a device that would transmit sound at a distance via vibrations in steel reeds that charge with currents. Um, when one of the reeds didn't respond, Bell was thinking it might have got stuck on a magnet or something like that. So he sent his assistant over there to fix it. Mm. And when he had plucked it in his hand, he actually heard his voice from a great distance. So when he did that, they discovered they had successfully transmitted sound. So it was amazing, quite by accident that they found out this. One month later, they submitted human voice. Um, and the first recorded telephone conversation Valentine's day in 1867, not one, but two men were actually physically racing to the patent office. (laughs) The one who got there first, however, wasn't Alexander Graham Bell, but Elijah Gray. Gray had been working on a sound transmitting device for years, similar to Bell's, except it used a liquid transmitter instead of a copper transmitter. Okay. Okay. And on the morning of February fourteenth, Gray's lawyer got to the patent office bright and early, handed in his patent paperwork, where it sat at
1: the bottom of the pile until that afternoon. See, I'm visioning a uh, two people. Oh shit, we had a good idea. Racia, yeah, <laughs> in the sprinting.
0: So in the meantime, just before noon, Bell's lawyer reached the patent office. Oh, so God. I got here first. I got here yeah. first. <laughs> It's like, I got a jar of dirt. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but whether by force or by just having more clout than Rihanna, <laughs> he had Bell's paperwork pushed through the pile and filed immediately. So Gray's paperwork sitting on the bottom of the pile, Bell's paperwork is in his hand going up top. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that Grey got there first, It's mainly the claim that the paperwork Bell did file that day included a section that had been stolen directly from Gray's work. Okay. The patent examiner who looked at both Bell and Gray's paperwork saw the red flag and suspended Bell's application for 90 days while he reviewed the claim. Oh, shame. However, Bell and his lawyer were able to persuade the examiner little bit of money under the table as you do to lift the suspension after they produced an earlier patent filing of bells that showed use of a liquid transmitter so he said like i've used a liquid transmitter before here's here's the paperwork proving it that filing showed both the liquid being used and his his second design which was enough for the patent to be granted eventually to bell and while bell and gray is most certainly the most dramatic showdown in this whole tale mm. it also obscures the pioneering work of nearly a dozen men who can also lay claim to the invention of the telephone Rough. <laughs> so antonio minucci achieved success with primitive telephones way back in the 1830s so 30 years earlier than any of these guys so i think a good nickname for him would be <laughs> minucci minucci <laughs> or just chew Choo. Minucci. <laughs> <laughs> so, he was originally able to transmit his voice um electromagnetically as Bell eventually would like in the 1850s. So, mm-hmm. he did 20 years earlier than him. Minucci even filed a caveat, which at that time was the formal version of a patent as opposed to doing a complete filing, so he put in like a pre-filing essentially with the patent office in eighteen seventy one that essentially describes the device Bell would patent five years later. However Minucci, who lived Manooch. in po- <laughs> Nooch. Nooch. Who lived in poverty most of his life wasn't able to av- to pay the ten dollar oh. caveat renewal fee in eighteen seventy four. So because he couldn't pay that renewal fee. Poor Minuche. He never got credit for it. Alright. King of Pop, who is it? MJ? Yeah, you got it. Michael Jackson. Yes.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Can I do that without getting sued? Is I that... don't know if he owns the copyright to that. Okay, well, we're leaving it in until we find out differently. Yeah.
0: Um, Michael Jackson did not invent the moonwalk. So the King of Pop's first public moonwalk occurred during the airing of Motown's 25th anniversary that aired March 25th. 1983 Motown
1: were massive
0: i know and they were
1: the um r&b hip-hop it was type. the it was whole huge. reason we have r&b music yeah. basically
0: Mowie. the now legendary move came at the end of his performance of billy jean and man Billie jean it was cool like i don't care who you are that was cool eh. while we all gave credit to michael jackson for the move And he never denied it wasn't his move, by the way. Mm. The evidence is actually pretty solid that Jackson knowingly sought out um, Shamala, Jeffries Daniel to teach him the move in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. When the biggest pop star in the world is at his biggest point in his career and he's on one of the biggest stages ever played and he unveils a mind-blowing move that would become his signature move, literally no one questions it. Mm. (laughs) Even though... Many have done that move before. Mm. The first filmed ever moonwalking was actually done by Bill Bailey at New York, New York's Apollo Theater in 1955. So the dance was reportedly performed countless times by dozens of famous entertainers, including Marcel Marceau, James Brown, Dick Van Dyke, Cab Calloway, and many more as back as as far back as the 1930s. So this moonwalk has been
1: happening for Decades. So the, ideally, MJ just bought it into pop culture and blew it up. He just made it smooth, baby. Yeah,
0: he's smooth. <laughs> so the thing is, we all gave Michael Jackson the credit for the move, but it really kind of came down to someone else. Mm. So it's hard to think of like a cultural phenomenon mm. like karaoke that has reached and had the staying power of karaoke, came from literally a starving artist. Insane. But it did. Um, it's really painful because the guy who actually invented karaoke made next to no money from it.
1: That actually makes me really sad when somebody has created something unique and other people get the credit for it and they make millions out of it.
0: Inui was a drummer in a Japanese bar band and at the end of his set, he would let businessmen come up on stage, and they the band would play music while they got to sing along to their favorite songs. Okay. And he, I'm got not the, there for it.
1: <laughs> I don't want to hear middle aged men singing through a microphone. I think I'll pass. Things. Especially at the end of a set, right? Like it's probably late in the night. The guys probably hammered. a bit drunk. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but this one particular night, after yeah. a long night of playing, um, this guy had been singing along with the band, and he actually asked if this drummer would record tracks so he could sing without the band at home um to who himself
1: (laughs) or his family everybody family meeting sit down i'm gonna sing (laughs) so starving
0: artist poor lonely businessman in a bar (laughs) that's how karaoke was invented (laughs) are we surprised so, in 1971, Inui produced 11 units of the Juki 8, which was a standalone machine with an 8-track tape player, a microphone, and a coin slot. So, you put the coin slot in, mm-hmm. you get up, you sing along. Like a jukebox. Yeah, exactly. Like a jukebox, but you're singing. Gross. <laughs> he never patented the idea, though. Dang. So sad. And it literally was only a matter of years before more technologically sophisticated karaoke machines were hitting the market and then they were everywhere
1: we can buy that shit for your home like people buy it for their kids
0: but here's the really sad thing okay so dashashiko is now the largest karaoke company in the world and since the mid 80s they've made out like bandits so the global markets estimate that the size of karaoke industry is it's hard to pin down because Mm. it's really hard to get accurate numbers but one association estimated that it was, bu- it was worth um, 617 billion yen, oh,
1: bloody hell,
0: which is 5.9 billion dollars in US dollars, and that was in 2011. That's some cash. So this starving artist missed out on some serious moolah.
1: That's a shame. This that makes me upset. <laughs> Number one.
0: I have one honorable mention that I yes. would feel remiss not mentioning. Um, I actually felt really sad when I read this. Oh,
1: no. Am it, I going to be sad or am I going to laugh?
0: You'll probably laugh because you're okay. a terrible Brilliant. person.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I want to talk about
0: windshield wipers. Random. Oh, God. Right? Do you know the story?
1: I don't know the story, but I just know that sometimes they get really dry on my windscreen and then i'm like where i was going with this conversation and then i'm like sean can you fix my windscreen wipers (laughs) and he fixes them but anyway so
0: november 10 in 1903 um, an american woman named mary anderson patented the automatic windshield wipers Mm. so this is a device that is used to remove or wipe the front windshields of automobiles they were kind of rudimentary back then But Mary was visiting New York when she noticed her driver had to get out of the car every single time to wipe the falling snow off the windshield by himself, which was making her very late to her next appointment. So when she got back home to Alabama, she drew out her invention of windshield wipers and she got a patent like killing it. It's a good idea.
1: I mean, at that point in time to be like old mates having to get in and out especially the fact that she's a woman in 1903 the fact that she decided to patent
0: a technology yeah i'm here for it yeah like so far like get it girl you know yeah so when she received the patent anderson tried to sell it to a canadian manufacturing firm unfortunately it was 1903 and barry was a woman
1: oh, companies are. are
0: yeah Companies weren't interested in doing business with any woman, especially without a prominent male to support her ideas. Of course, because you always need a male to stand behind you. So she approached multiple different companies. They all refused, arguing that the device, get this, Mm. had no practical value (laughs) and was not worth the money. Um, People scoffed at the invention, saying the wipers' movements would actually distract drivers and cause accidents. So they're like, silly woman, this is dangerous, and you're a woman, go away. (laughs) So sadly, the patent that she had on her invention actually expired before she could actually use the idea and get someone to manufacture it. Um, Mechanical windshield wipers were standard equipment Mm. 10 years later. (sighs) So she invented them in 1903. 10 years later, they're on every single car.
1: That sucks, me
0: Yeah, and it's all because the patent expired and she couldn't get anyone to, to take her up on her idea. That's sad. Anderson never profited a dime from the invention. Oh, that's even worse. But she did live long enough to see her dream become a reality, which was winter wipers on every single car. Mm.
1: Um,
0: and she was introduced into the Inventors Hall of Fame in 2011. Yes. Even though, unfortunately, she was never monetarily compensated.
1: What a legend.
0: Well, that's all the time we have to blow your minds with origin stories of everyday objects. If you have a suggestion for what you want to list about, let us know. You can chirp us at Twitter at the Big List Podcast. Follow us on
1: Instagram at the Big List Podcast. Make fun of us on TikTok at the Big List Podcast. Or go old school. Send us an email at biglistpod at gmail.com. Next time we are talking about fairy tales and nursery rhymes. Gonna
0: be so exciting. And this list is gonna be
1: Big. big bye bye see you next time tulu mm-hmm. <laughs>